Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Today, my guest is Annika Harris. Annika is an author, an editor, consultant for science writers, the author of the children's book, I Wonder, and a collaborator on Susan Kaiser Greenland's Mindful Games activity cards. Uh, today, we're talking about her book, Conscious, A Brief Guide to the Fundamental Mystery of Mind. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So, see you again. Yeah, likewise. <laughs> Tell me how you got interested in the subject of consciousness. Mm. It goes back pretty far, actually. I, I really have been interested in it as a phenomenon for as long as I can remember. Mm. Um, I've been I've been talking more recently um, a little bit about my my first when I, when I first re- realized that there was something interesting and mysterious about the fact that we're having an experience, and that. And, and this is so. This is at a very young age. This is I was about eight or nine years old, um, and this first came in the context of um, severe migraines that that I was suffering from. And there were a couple of times where the the migraine went on for for long enough that I was just st- kind of stuck in a very still position because any any little movement would cause um, the migraine to to be much more painful. Mm. Um, for a long stretch of time, I actually don't know, but it was probably at least an hour, if not closer to two. Um, and, and other people I have now spoken with other people who've had a similar experience in pain. And I think especially children, um, there's something I think more flexible about children's minds and brains. And when they're experiencing pain, um, I think there, there are just a variety of ways that they start searching for, for coping and I discovered, I think I just, I became curious naturally because I was stuck there um, about what this experience of pain actually was. And I, I think I, I did just naturally become curious. And then I realized that becoming curious about it um, stopped this stance that I had of resisting it, this kind of like psychological stance of resisting it, which just gave me the tiniest bit of relief and when you're in that much pain any move in either direction of more pain or less is is pretty significant and so that 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 realization I feel like for me was the beginning of my getting curious about experience in general and how it's how the moment-to-moment experience is different from what we generally assume or there's mm. there's a lot missing in our day-to-day experience when so it sounds like not. you discovered mindfulness meditation on your own as a child yes and i think that's actually not so uncommon mm. um well, but i mean yes. someone had yes. to discover so I, it yeah you know, right <laughs> yeah and presumably people have been discovering it all over the world for thousands of years yes I that's very so. cool yeah and i in my volunteer work i teach meditation to children mm-hmm. and that was one of the, the main reasons why I wanted to is realizing that I couldn't have possibly been the only one who came across this this type of technique as a child and that children are really available to to learning that skill. Um, so I didn't think we were going to talk about this first, but after having that initial experience of for a moment being mindful, realizing that your pain could be attenuated by paying attention to it, mm. did you go deeper into that? Did you, did you try to replicate that other times you were in pain as a child? Yes. And actually I did, I was, I then realized that it was applicable to psychological pain as well. Mm. And that's, that's the one place I, I, you know, I'm sure there are times I use it that I, I just don't remember, but, but my, my strong memories are of being in difficult situations where I was very anxious, where, um, you know, some, something difficult was happening. Um, in my childhood where I realized I could apply that same way of approaching it. And even I I kind of had my own version of meditation. Mm. Um, It would have been incredible to have actually been taught it. (laughs) 
um, as a skill by an adult, which is why I, I, you know, I'm such a big proponent of, of this, um, because it was, I was just kind of figuring it out on my own, Mm. but yes, no, I quickly realized that that strategy could be applied to any kind of discomfort. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So we'll get back to how meditation links up with consciousness in general, but let's get to some basic definitions here. Yeah. Yeah. Consciousness, that word is used in a lot of different ways. Yes. Uh, it's used in a political sense sometimes, consciousness raising. Yes. Um, let's narrow down what we're talking about here. What is yeah. consciousness? Yeah. Um, so the way I use the term and what I'm talking about in the book um, is consciousness in the most fundamental sense. So I think the best synonym is experience, um, whether there's an experience present. And it can be, it doesn't have to be complex thought. It doesn't have to be if um, very simple creatures like worms or flies or bees are conscious, we wouldn't, we don't expect them to be having thoughts and you know, plans and um, writing books. There's this, compared to our experience, it's, it's very minimal, but whether there's an experience present at all, um, and this connects to what the mystery of consciousness is, which is really the focus of the book, the under uh, kind of defining consciousness as the, in this very fundamental sense of just experience in, in whatever form it's present. Um, it, it's in contrast to the way we see the universe, which we assume most of which is, is non-conscious. So, you know, we look out at the stars and the earth and all, you know, the universe is, is filled with this non-conscious material and these atoms. And at some point these atoms get configured in such a way that it becomes, um, there's something that it's like to be that collection of atoms or that system or that brain. Um, And so so I was just referencing um, Thomas Nagel's uh, description of consciousness. um, And and he says in his his famous essay, what is it like to be a bat? He says, um, a system, or or, sorry, an organism is conscious if there is something that it is like to be that organism. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's really what what I'm talking about in the book and how I'm using the word conscious. Yeah. For many people, I think they'll intuitively grasp why it's mysterious that Mm. the guitar hanging on the wall over there is not conscious or so we think we'll get there. Right. And that (laughs) I am conscious and that I assume by analogy that you're conscious. Mm -hmm. Many people I think will understand at a gut level why that's somewhat mysterious. If we're both made of atoms, we're made of the same building blocks as the guitar but i think some people won't they'll think well yeah it's something there's something it's like to be me there's nothing it's like to be a rock that's just the way things are how do you that's how most people see it actually yeah it's it's it takes a little bit of work for someone to get to why consciousness is so mysterious that's right yeah um in the book you talk about one of the problems with consciousness is that there's no outward signs of consciousness, right? E- even well, we kind of assume there are. We assume we think there, there are. are. We think there but are. That's one of the things I'm questioning. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you can, I imagine the way you set it up in your book, mm. it's it's almost as if there's sort of four categories, right? There's behaviors that seem conscious, behaviors that don't seem conscious, mm-hmm. and then there's the reality of consciousness and. Uh, the reality of not being conscious. So you can have locked in syndrome Mm -hmm. where you are having a full experience, but you can't move any part of your body. Mm -hmm. So you don't seem to be conscious. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the other hand, things that we assume are not conscious can do perform basically all of the behaviors that we can, right? right? Computers can speak. Now I heard an AI simulation of Jordan Peterson's voice recently on Twitter that was absolutely indistinguishable from the real wow, thing. I'd like to hear that. Yeah. And I, yeah. I don't presume that there was a consciousness behind the program right. that made mm-hmm. that audio. Mm-hmm. So every permutation of behavior and consciousness is possible. Mm-hmm. And right. once you admit that, it seems like we actually have to find a theory that tells us which objects are conscious we- and which objects aren't. Because yes. we can't just trust our intuitions. Right. Yeah. So do you have a candidate for that theory? How do you, how do you <laughs> think about, you know, if, if, if we were to build a robot made mm. of silicon yeah. that behaved in many 
ways like a human. Yeah. No, I mean, we can how would you how would you think about far away? Yeah. yeah. How would you think about determining so, whether it was? Conscious? I mean, my, my the short answer to whether I have a theory is is no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think it's 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 possible we won't be able to ever know the answer to this question. However, I think there are many questions that we haven't been asking enough, and I think we haven't been creative enough in our exploration of what consciousness is and um, at what level in the universe and information processing it arises. And so the main goal of my book is really, as you're you're pointing to, um, shaking up our intuitions and shaking up assumptions. And so one of the most important processes um, in, in science, one of the most important um, scientific pro- um, part of the scientific process is challenging intuitions, um, especially when we are getting evidence that is counterintuitive. And so, um, you know, I, I, I've often mentioned um, this large range of categories where we've had to do this, um, and we often forget because our, our intuitions shift as Um, we gain new information and then we're able to kind of absorb something that's counterintuitive and then it actually changes our intuition. So Mm -hmm. we have some ingrained intuitions that human beings have evolved and, but our intuitions are also shaped by ideas and by culture. And so understanding that the earth is a sphere is, is basically the first moment we were encountered with evidence that was extremely counterintuitive where we had to grapple with these facts that didn't seem, that didn't feel right to us for some period of time before we could really absorb the new information and, and realize this was in fact true. Um, the germ theory of disease, uh, the theory of evolution or anything that happens at a significant time scale, our, our, our intuitions don't guide us well in those areas. Um, and so there, there seems to often be a period of time. Um, this happens very often now in, in physics. Um, we're, we're in, in terms of understanding space time and, and the fundamental features of reality Physicists are just continually in the business of encountering counterintuitive facts that mm. they then kind of have to have to check and see which intuitions are leading us towards truth and which intuitions are, are misleading us. And we're and I think we're in a similar place with regard to consciousness studies right now. So I think we clearly have some intuitions that are misleading us. Mm. Um, I think there's there's already some neuroscience that is conclusive enough that, that we know certain intuitions are, are in fact misleading us. And, and those intuitions have to do with primarily conscious will um, and the feeling of being a self. And these intuitions largely inform our intuitions about consciousness. Mm. But we also just specifically about consciousness, we have some very deep intuitions and assumptions that I think we haven't spent enough time challenging. And I really see that as the first step. So I think if we're going to be able to make progress, if we're going to be able to get to a point where we can start to have a working theory of consciousness and understand where, where in the universe we, we will find it. um, I think it will begin with this process of challenging intuitions. And I think we're really in in some ways at the beginning of that process. Mm. Um, A lot of the intuitions that I'm asking people to to challenge in the book um, are still they're still very controversial and they're hard for many scientists and and um, neuroscientists to yeah to, to grapple with. Um, but I, I really think that's the first step. I think that's mm-hmm. I I don't yet have answers. I think it's possible we may never have answers, but I'm actually optimistic that we can understand a lot better. I think it's just going to entail um, challenging intuitions and thinking much more creatively than we have. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I I also tend to think that, and we'll I think we'll get here that the problem, the deep mystery is unsolvable at yeah. least by minds like ours. But Definitely I possible. do, you know, you you describe in the book in the beginning, sort of as an analogy for what it feels like to think mm. about consciousness. I think lying on on the earth as mm. as a young girl, yeah, and looking up into space. And realizing you weren't looking up, right? Really, right? That no, the intuition of up and down. Yeah, yeah. And it's easy to know that intellectually once you learn about the solar system and you realize there's no such thing as up and down except relative to where we are on the globe. Yeah. But to feel that is a different yeah. thing. Yeah. To actually feel viscerally that yeah. what you're looking at isn't up, but yeah. rather into space, right. outward. Out. Yeah. 
that is very much what it's like. And, and then you can have the experience of really feeling it at a gut level and then a second later going back to just Absolutely. feeling like it's up because yes. we're built. I remember that's the experience I had when I read Daniel Dennett's book, mm. uh, Intuition Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking, uh -huh. which is the first place I ever encountered in my life the claim that there was not a little Coleman mm -hmm. inside my head right. looking at looking out at the movie of yeah. my life yeah. and making decisions. Right. He just said that's scientifically wrong. Right. Like, there's no place in the brain that it could be. Right. And I realized that without knowing it, I had this belief my whole life. Yeah. That was completely unsupported. Yeah. And it it shook everything up for me. Yeah. Um, no, that, that's one of the central intuitions that I that I talk about in the book because it's so related to consciousness. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that example that I give of of this this trick I used to play on my brain <laughs> when mm -hmm. I was a kid um, is all about challenging intuitions almost more than it is specifically about consciousness. Mm. Um, and I think this is what's so exciting about science, and for me, it's what's so fun about it's the fun part of science is realizing that there's truth out there that we can find and seek um, and better understand the universe that is different from what we assumed. And there, there's something, I think, intrinsically interesting about um, letting new information in and actually having it, it shift our perspective, um, because often our perspective is this um, very small minded, you know, human dealing with our, our everyday experiences and kind of closed off from the larger mm. reality, mm. Um, which I think for the most part really does give us joy in, in contemplating and understanding that, that we're kind of connected to something much bigger and more mysterious than, mm. than we realize. One obstacle I, I've had talking to people about this subject mm. is the idea of consciousness being vulnerable to scientific explanation mm. doesn't sit well with many people. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Even m many people who are very science minded in most domains, mm. consciousness is this sacred area mm. that they don't want science to impinge on. Mm. And I found, I, I think it has something to do with life after death mm. and wanting to maintain uh, some mystery. Uh -huh. My perspective on this has, has been, I don't expect science to ever right. figure out yeah. why, what it is that makes certain collections of atoms yeah. conscious and others not. So yeah. I'm, I'm sympathetic in the sense that I, I also like there being some mystery in yeah. life, Yeah. but I just, I don't think I this think one there is, there will always be, mystery. I think, we are not going to figure everything out. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that that's okay. But I think we do have some, Resistance. I mean, I think I often, when I encounter resistance like that, I, I, I notice that in myself, I think the word science um, can mean different things to different mm. people. And it can, for some people, conjure up um, something invasive and sterile and um, kind of the opposite of what it, it means to me, which is simply seeking the truth mm. and better understanding. And I think I'm probably not everyone feels this way, but for me, um, the idea that I could be living um, in ignorance of some, some deeper truth um, that is interesting or fundamentally shifts the way I think things are or they seem to me now um, I wouldn't want to be in the dark. I, I, I want to understand it. And, mm. and I think, sci sci you know, in, in terms of life after death, I mean, you, if someone has a very specific conception of how that works and they're attached to that idea, um, science is very likely to get in the way of that. But science ultimately is, is seeking the truth. And so if consciousness exists in plants or other forms of life that we haven't yet thought um, it does, if there's some way in which it, you know, continues on after death, I think the, the idea that, you know, in a, in a more traditional religious sense, that there's some, there's some me that's, you know, that's, 
that's essentially me that's like a soul that that goes on i think you know science is very unlikely to to discover something like that is happening but the truth is it, it could discover that consciousness does actually um, move beyond the yeah. brain or come from some other source i came away um, from your book very let's let's how do i put it very open to the idea that consciousness could be pervading everyday objects yeah yeah and that sounds like a crazy thing to say yeah. when you say it at face value. It really does. It sounds crazy to me. Still. Yeah, it still um, sounds crazy. Yeah. But if you actually trace the logical intuitions that you would use to try to refute that, yeah, they're they're not as solid as they seem. Yeah. And much of the 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 you talk about in the book, it that view is caricatured as like, oh, so rocks are thinking, right? It's like, well, no, right. We, we, we conflate thinking yes. with consciousness, yes. which is a point that you make in the book and that many people I think don't totally understand yeah. because partly because it just so happens that humans think constantly. Right. So no, that's, that's in our consciousness. Right. Yeah. So we assume that thinking is intrinsic, intrinsic to consciousness. Yes. But consciousness is a completely different thing. From thinking, certainly than linguistic absolutely. thought. Yes, absolutely. So you could yeah. imagine a sort of pure stream of consciousness, just experience almost like just a white light with no other sensory dimension, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. sight, for example. Yeah. Something very rudimentary. Yeah. You can imagine that pervading the universe or, or that being what it's like to be an atom. Part of matter. Say. Yeah. Well, yeah. So so we're kind of getting into this, this um category of theories that, that is termed panpsychism. Um, and they all in, in some form or another postulate that, that consciousness is, is a fundamental force, um, or a fundamental element of matter. Um, either, you know, all, you know, down to the level of atoms and electrons or existing in some field, uh, the permeations of which give all matter this intrinsic property. So it, you know, it has all of the physical properties that, that we know it has. And then it, um, under these theories, the idea is that, that all matter, um, everywhere in the universe has this intrinsic property as well. Mm. And that it's something more fundamental. Um, and it, yes, as you said, it, it's, it's, it's very important that we don't, um, confuse, consciousness with complex thought. Mm -hmm. And one reason we do that, and it's, it's very interesting um, to think about, and I think that's why it's so important to kind of break down these intuitions that are misleading us, but consciousness is the one thing that we can't have really any direct proof or experience of, but for our own. So we assume that only things that are like us have this thing because there's no way for us to measure it or see it or even detect it. I, you know, it's, I assume that you're conscious <laughs> um, because you're enough like me. And I think that assumption makes sense and is mm. correct. Um, but if someone were to tell me that you are actually this new advanced AI and there's, there's nothing that it's like to be you and the lights are off, you know, there's, there's nothing, there's no experience being had on the inside um, I wouldn't expect necessarily expect anything to be different on the outside. Mm. Um, and as the, the, the examples you mentioned that, that I bring up in my book of locked in syndrome, um, and anesthesia awareness mm. is another one. We know that it's possible to have as rich a, a conscious experience as we're having right now without any exterior behavior at all. Um, and so we, we always assume that consciousness only exists in similar organisms or structures to our own. And the mm -hmm. further away you get from a human being, the less likely it seems just because we can't have, we can't have any knowledge or evidence from it, yeah. of it from the outside. It, it, when I was reading your book, it struck me that the, the link between consciousness on the one hand, which is to say experience, first person mm -hmm. experience, the mm -hmm. fact of experience mm -hmm. and any behavior is kind of the the biggest correlation without causation right. problem that humanity has ever experienced because right. we assumed until we learned about locked in syndrome 
and anesthesia awareness that there's a direct link between the two. My consciousness mm-hmm. is what is causing my mm-hmm. hand to move. Mm-hmm. There's a causal link there. Mm-hmm. It's not just that my hand is moving just the way a silicon robot w- would move. Right. And I am aware that that's happening. Right. We assume there's a causal link, that I'm yeah. the cause of the thing. Yeah. But that could turn out to be just a correlation. Yes. Well, and so so there are a couple of places we can we can go here, but... I should say, in, in I, I begin the book. It's in the first or second chapter that I um, that I pose these two questions mm. um, that that are the big beginning of the interrogation of these um, intuitions that we have about consciousness. And the, the first question is: um, Is there any behavior we can point to that is conclusive evidence that consciousness is present in that system? Um, and our, our reflexive answers to both of these questions is yes, and this is the thing that, that, I'm, that I'm trying to undermine a bit. And the second question is related, but it's different. And the second question is, is consciousness having an effect? Is it doing something? Mm-hmm. Is consciousness necessary for certain behaviors to take place? And, and we have a very strong intuition that, that the answer to that is yes, which is what you were, what you were um, addressing there. And... There's actually neuroscience uh-huh. now um, that absolutely brings this into question mm-hmm. um, on many levels. So there have now been studies. So, so I, I, in the book, I distinguish conscious will from free will mm-hmm. because I think you can talk about them separately. Um, I think free will is a phenomenon of a brain or any system interacting with its environment, um, processing new ideas, having different options, and um, through complex processing, making a decision. Mm. I think there, there's some way in which we can talk about that as being free will, although ultimately I would argue that there's not much freedom there. But mm. we, that, that's still intact, and we can still kind of have the free will that, that everyone is interested in mm. um, and drop this illusion of conscious will, mm. which I think is conclusively false and um a false intuition Mm. so there have been these studies that started a long time ago with with famous studies that were slightly controversial um libet did did these um motor movement studies um you were talking about moving your hand we so we feel that whether or not we our brains ultimately have free will we have this feeling that consciousness itself is the will Mm. consciousness is the will so we have to have this conscious experience of willing the action um, or the decision or, or whatever it is, that consciousness is behind many of our behaviors, um, all the behaviors we think are important, really. And that's something that we can begin to question because neuroscience is starting to, to break that down mm. a little bit for us. And there, there are a lot of different studies you can look at, but specifically, um, so Labette did these studies um, using EEG, having um, participants move a, a finger, I think usually, or, or a hand. Um, so he was looking at motor movement, and they were deter- the subjects were determining when they consciously had the impulse or the, made the decision to, to move that finger. Um, and they mark on this, it's, it's a special clock that he used, but it's kind of like a second hand on a clock, and they could kind of mark it in their minds, you know, the, this hand was on the one when I decided to move my finger. Um, it turns out he could detect that decision at the um, through EEG some milliseconds before the person was consciously aware of making that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, since then, there have been more recent studies. There's one in 2011 where they're actually reading from individual neurons and replicated his findings um, at the level of individual neurons when they were doing... Um, neurosurgery for um, epilepsy patients and, uh, and other patients who needed brain surgery. Um, while, while they were getting that surgery, they agreed to be a part of a study where they, they um, were, were studying conscious willed, consciously willed motor movements. Yeah. Um, and then there was a more recent one in 2013 that used fMRI um, to study something more complex, which I think is very interesting. And the participants rather than studying motor movement, which was slightly controversial because it seems like very different processing than um, making a more complex decision. Um, So in 2013, there was a study um, in Berlin where 
in an fMRI machine, the subjects were given two numbers and they had to choose whether to add or subtract these numbers. Mm. Um, and they would, it's a similar type of clock. When they made the decision, um, they would decide whether to add or subtract and then they would, they would do the math. And through the fMRI, they were able up to four seconds in advance know whether the subjects were going to choose to add or subtract and know the moment when they were going to make that decision. So when I hear all of these experiments, <laughs> yeah. I, I feel as if I am in Westworld just right. discovering that, in fact, I've been a robot the right. whole time. Right. There's, a little, there's an element of how, that. How is this not that? It kind of just is that. It kind of is. The idea that you couldn't predict, in, th in principle, we can only do this with very simple decisions now, left or right, add or subtract. But in principle, you could tell me what I'm going to do, not only before I do it, but yeah. before I've decided to yes. do it. Yeah. You can tell me what I'm going well, to decide. Well, in some sense, we really don't need studies like this to right. prove the point. I mean, right. I, I think we actually... There's so much we understand about the brain, and there's so much we don't. I mean, we're at the very beginning stages. This is, you know, mm. neuroscience is a very young science. Um, but just with the little we know, we understand. I mean, so that's the same thing you were talking about with, you know, there's no Coleman self in there somewhere. Um, we know our experience is a product of the processing in our brains. Our brain, there, it's, it's processing. It's dynamic. It's right. not um, a single solid you know, free self that's making decisions, we are, not only is it dynamic and, it, and it's all brain processing, um, the brain, our brain is not in a vacuum. And so mm. we are connected to the outside world in all of these ways, all the things we hear, all the things we see, the, you know, things that are getting in subconsciously, um, even the air we breathe, you know, there, there's this interaction with the brain and its environment um, in a way that is slightly counterintuitive to us, even though we understand it. Mm. Um, and the fact that our experience is all based on brain processing is something that most of us at this point understand and intellectually accept, but it's still not intuitive to us at all mm. um, you, there's a great joseph goldstein mm. who is a meditation teacher uh you quote him in the book mm -hmm. on the topic of free will yeah and i think he he says something like what would it even mean to have free will <laughs> yeah. what would it mean to have a will that stands outside of the cause and effect relationship right. that governs the world yeah right? like, i loved that answer this is an event yeah I, I found that this is a this I've had debates with people mm. in my private life where this point was not compelling to them, but yeah. either the laws of physics are laws right. or they're not. Right. And if they are, and if we're in the universe governed by those laws, yeah. then our brains are every bit as bound by those laws yes. as a clock. Yes. And so you're right that we actually don't need the Libet experiment right. to prove. You can prove it just by the conceptual point. But I mean, as long as you believe that you, that brain processing is what's creating your experience, you kind of that you have to kind of yeah. have that as, as your yeah. as your base understanding. Um, then then yes, your brain processing is is based on its environment and genes and yeah. your history and every interaction it's ever had. And I think the upshot of Westworld is that. It's not just the robots that are robots. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's it's everyone. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. And, and, in some, in some in a sense, sense, that's true, although that's a very dark version of it. I mean, yeah. for me, it's funny yeah. because it. I think you're right that ultimately that it's it's a very close description to the one I would give of the situation we're actually in. Um, I see that reality as actually being um, a source of awe and wonder and i always hesitate to use the word spirituality but mm. there's i think there's actually something it in the end it actually gives me some peace of mind mm. um and i feel like for me it's a source of well-being and um not just because it's it's a source of awe but it actually I think gives us a sense of a deeper truth of our connection to the rest of the universe, which I think is something that is, is part of spirituality. I think um, for, there's an, another word, it's, it's worse than consciousness. People use this <laughs> to, 
with you know to mean anything they they wanted to mean but I, I should say when I when I use the word um, I'm speaking about a, a a stance of kind of staring into the unknown while seeking truth um, and seeking a source of well-being within truth in some some kind of connection and relationship to mm. to the universe at large yeah um, so let's talk about evolution okay we are evolved creatures and we all of the parts of us are evolved for something. Right. My hand is for grasping. We have these opposable thumbs. They were useful to our ancestors. The ones that had them had an advantage over the ones who didn't, et cetera, et cetera. Most people know the basics. Mm-hmm. Every part of us was built by evolution. Mm-hmm. Even the parts that we don't think have functions like the appendix once had a function. Mm-hmm. What is consciousness for Right. in the so, context of yeah. evolution? Right. Um, so this is one of the the avenues I take again to to challenge our intuitions a bit, and this is something I was thinking about more recently. Just in the last few days, actually, yeah. I was taking notes on the plane. <laughs> so I'm glad you brought it up. Good. So th- this is one one thing in support of these this this um, umbrella term of panpsychism. Um, if we can't find what conscious what function consciousness serves, um, then it's, it's, we cannot assume it's something that has evolved. Mm. Um, so we can kind of talk, talk down mm. that path. If it's something that's a fundamental, um, uh, feature of the universe that there is consciousness present in all matter everywhere in the universe, um, then the brain processing that exists, our, our experience of it is is simply what it's like to be this brain processing. And there would be an experience associated with all matter in every configuration, whether it's doing information processing or not, but there'd be some level, however minimal in the most minimal systems, um, it's something that's just a fundamental feature of matter. Mm. Um, and therefore... It's not something that evolved. It's something that is just present in, in every structure. Uh, yeah. the, the thing that's interesting is, so, so this really goes against my intuitions. And I always assumed um, that, I think like, like everyone, that it, somehow it intuitively makes sense that because it feels, we feel so strongly that consciousness is behind certain behaviors and behind, behind behaviors that have evolved, right? So... We think, um, you know, I need to feel scared to run from the lion. That mm. there, there's part of the processing that gets me to stay safe mm. is the experience of feeling the fear. And mm-hmm. I think there are good reason, reasons to question whether the feeling of it actually matters because we could um, easily program a robot to, um, you know, react in certain situations where it could be caused harm. And we wouldn't expect it to need to feel anything to just run that program in that circumstance and so if it happened to feel like something that's kind of just something that that comes along for the ride and this Mm. this is one of the chapter titles in my book is along for the ride which Mm -hmm. is um at this point largely how i how i see consciousness um but what so this thing that i've been thinking about recently is let's say we go with that intuition that that consciousness somehow is useful and somehow makes our behavior um um, bet, bet more suited for survival, right? This, this, this awareness of the behavior helps us survive. I was thinking, where, where would we place that moment that that change happened? I mean, separate from the fact that you, you kind of encounter the hard problem and wonder how an awareness, how, how consciousness ever comes into a physical system. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's say that, you know, that just magically happened at some point. So the, the way evolution works is there, there's a gene mutation that just happens and it's either useful or not. And most mm-hmm. of them are not. And the, there are gene mutations happening all the time. And the ones that are incredibly successful get passed on and then, you know, more and more creatures take it on. So if there's a gene mutation, so you have to imagine there's some creature um, or cell, you know, you, so you have to find where, where you imagine this comes in, right? If mm-hmm. it comes in at the level of a cell... Um, already we're talking about something very counterintuitive and mm-hmm. something science does not support that mm-hmm. cells, individual cells are conscious. But so you either have to go very deep to, you know, a moment like that in, in a cell or you go to a simple creature like a worm or 
wherever you place it, we're talking about a system that exists already, and then there's a mutation that happens that may that brings a level of experience to that system. Mm. So there's some point in time, and I'm not an evolutionary biologist, and I would love to you know to talk to one about about this. Now mm-hmm. now I've gotten very curious just about the details how this would work, and so mm. I, I may be missing something, but um, it seems that at some point you have two systems that are almost identical or very similar. One, there's no experience. There's nothing it's like to be that system. And one that has some level of awareness, even if it's very, very minimal, even if, you know, it's experience of heat or light, as you said, you know, something very minimal. Um, And so we're still, wherever we place that, we're still at a point where consciousness is not necessary for the behavior for that system because it already existed. We just suddenly, I mean, if you're just adding consciousness, it's just an it's just an awareness, an experience of being that system, mm. um, and so I think it poses two problems for us. One is, it seems that that would have happened much earlier than we assume. Consciousness evolved, right? Most people think consciousness of most scientists even think consciousness evolved. I mean, you get debate on whether you know it's at the level of insects Mm -hmm. um if you you know go to mammals if you have to if you know fish are not you know it depends on where you put it but um then suddenly it seems very strange that we're talking about some fish didn't have consciousness (laughs) so you know there's this mutation and any conclusion you come to is extremely strange right even the the non-panpsychist ones yes so you talk in the book about the ways really this mystery Yeah. yeah You talk about the the ways in which trees communicate underground. Mm. Mm. These were facts that I, I didn't really know, but it, it really just had the character of human communication in slow motion <laughs> and not yeah. even in that slow motion. Right. In terms of, yeah. you know, trees alerting their children, trees to potential threats, to, you know, like in real time through... Yes. The underground networks. Yes. I don't know mm-hmm. all the details, but yeah. like all it consciousness, if it has an evolutionary rationale, if it if it helps us survive and reproduce in the same way that our eyes or our mm-hmm. brains do, mm-hmm. would seem equally useful to a tree. Right. I mean, it, I mean it, yeah. If it's useful, it would be useful kind of across the board. Yeah. And you're right. I think you're you're very right to say that. It is, it is a very, it's very favorable for the theory of panpsychism that it's not clear that, that, that consciousness would have a evolutionary purpose for us. Right. I I brought up this plant behavior in my book, actually, not because I think it's likely that plants are conscious, although Mm. you can go down that path Mm. as well. Um, But I brought it up actually because the behavior is so complex. Um, I think it's very interesting when we're looking at human and animal and mammalian behavior that we assume requires consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, we look at these plant behaviors, which we assume are not conscious, and they're so much more complex than we you know, understood previously. Mm-hmm. And they actually are very similar in, in relevant ways to human and, and, and other animal behavior that it gets you to question whether those behaviors are actually evidence of consciousness. Yeah. So that, that was kind of why right. I was, I was using those behaviors, but yes. Yeah, so, so Susan Samard has done this work and there, there are other people who've done um, work. Uh, uh, David Shamovitz has also done work on, on plant behavior and the mechanisms behind plant behavior, but the, the work re- you were referring to, which I think is so fascinating and I didn't know much about until I did research for this book um, are underground mycorrhizal networks, which are networks that are facilitated by fungi. Um, they're these vast, elaborate, in forest underground networks that that help different tree species um, coexist. That show that they're actually um, interdependent on each other. That they share carbon um, underground through mm. these vast networks um, with different species of trees, depending on what time of year it is and which species need more carbon at that time. They're, they're constantly kind of sharing it in this regulated way. 
Um, but the, the thing you mentioned, I think, is kind of the most interesting and the most closely related to human behavior, which is that the um, trees that dropped seedlings, um, Susan in her work talks about, um, she calls them the mother trees, um, the trees that dropped the seedlings, they could recognize their kin in the forest when they were you know, planted amongst other trees that, that were not directly related in this way. And they treat their kin, they send more carbon to their kin, they mm. make more room for their roots underground, they send more defense signals. Um, there's this way in which they're um, behaving and treating their kin so similarly to the way we do. And we assume we need consciousness for all mm. of that. We assume we need love and fear and all of these driving um, conscious experiences. And if we assume plants are not conscious, it really does get us to question whether consciousness is the thing that's making those behaviors possible. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about split brain. Okay. Patients. Um, mm -hmm. These are patients who get their corpus callosum cut either fully or partially. Yes. So their left hemisphere is no longer connected with the right hemisphere. Yes. Can you describe to me what are some of the findings in patients mm -hmm. like that? Mm -hmm. So this is mostly the, the work of um, Michael Gazaniga and Roger Sperry. They, they were the first to do research on split brain patients. Um, so, so yes, there were these patients um, for, who underwent these surgeries for epilepsy. And then Michael Gazaniga and, and Roger Sperry did um, research on them after the fact to see you know, what, what was different about their behavior, if anything, after, after this surgery. And it was interesting that for the most part, there wasn't um, much of a change noticed at all in uh, the patient's friends and family and the doctors, you know, in, in day to day life and interactions, there was very little um, to notice. They seemed very normal um, and acting very much the way they, they had prior to the surgery. Um, but when they started studying them, they noticed that because the communication wasn't being shared, um, they could actually ask questions of the right hemisphere or left hemisphere separately. Um, there were a variety of ways this was done, but there, there are some systems in the brain, in our visual field, for example, the, the right visual field gets projected to the left hemisphere and vice versa. And that information gets shared um, via the course of corpus callosum. And so when that is, is severed, the information doesn't get shared. Um, so they were able to ask um, split brain patients different questions um, through writing by projecting to one hemisphere or the other. Um, also, the hand, each hand is controlled by the opposite hemisphere. Um, and language, for the most part, is controlled by the left hemisphere. Um, and they could decipher this ahead of time. There, every, every once in a while, there's a patient that has um, a communication language center in the right hemisphere. Mm. Um, but for the most part, it's in the left. So they could ask a patient a question. Um, they would give an answer, and their spoken answer would be the answer from the left hemisphere, because that's the speaking hemisphere. But if they would ask, have the, the question answered by the right hemisphere, so that often this is done by the left hand, either through writing, through grabbing an object, through pointing, pointing to an answer on mm -hmm. a screen, um, they would get a, a very different answer to mm -hmm. questions that um, entail our, our conscious experience. So I don't right. know if you want me to give an example. It's, yeah, it's, hard, no, it's hard to describe. <laughs> yeah, please give an example. And if you have show notes, I can, I can actually give some visuals to, to help yeah. with this. But the example I give in the book... Um, they flash um, the word key to, sorry, on the right, the right visual field, mm -hmm. um, which goes, no, I'm sorry, it's the other way around. They flash the word key, mm -hmm. the left visual field. Mm -hmm. Which goes to your right goes hemisphere. Goes to the right hemisphere. Mm -hmm. So the right hemisphere is aware that it has seen the word key. But it can't the speak. Left, right, and the left hemisphere has seen nothing. Mm. That information has not been shared. Mm. So when they ask um, the subject, what word did you just see? They will say, I didn't see anything. I, I didn't see a word. And then when they say, will you reach out with your right hand, sorry, left hand, 
um, and grab the object of the word you just saw, and there are a variety of, of objects there, a coin, a key, a rubber band, different things, they'll immediately go out and grab the key with their left hand, which is being controlled by the right hemisphere. So there's obviously a way in which um, their consciousness has actually been split. It's almost like there are now two people. It's, yeah. it's more like conjoined twins yeah. than like a, a single person. I mean, the so, way I picture yeah. this is almost like the human body is a Pacific Rim style robot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there are two people in the robot, each controlling different parts. Yeah. Only one of them can make the robot speak. Right. And they can't talk to each other, these two people. Yes. So you show, but only one of them can see out of half the visual field. So if you show person one key, they'll want to tell person two, we're seeing a key right now, but they can't talk. And so, but, but that, that, that is a yeah. pretty freaky picture of what's happening there yes. because yes. it does suggest that in some deep sense, there are two consciousnesses that are separate yes. that just happen to be inhabiting the same body. Yes. And there are, uh, you, you describe in the book as well, there are experiments where, or, or there are situations in which a split brain patient is actually working at cross purposes. Yes with him or herself yes one yeah, it's called hem hemisph hemispheric rivalry yeah sorry go that's ahead. a great that's a great way to put it <laughs> a good term for it. but you have you know like one hand buttoning up a shirt and the other hand unbuttoning a shirt yes they have different desires they have different they have different wills and intentions and yeah um and different conscious experiences that raises the question so if you got your corpus Colossum cut right now, who would I be talking to? Like, <laughs> right. who do you become in that situation? So, I actually think that question doesn't really make sense. Yeah. But of course, it's a fascinating question. Mm. Um, so, in my thinking, as I've gone down more of a path um, of consciousness being something that is probably more pervasive than we have assumed. Um, but even separate from that, knowing that the idea that we are a single unified self that's doing the experiencing, knowing that that's an illusion, that mm. it's a very deep and strong um, intuition is actually an illusion. I think we it's more correct to talk about consciousness as having content mm. and Content can come and go. I mean, even in our normal experience, content comes and goes. So if I go to sleep and start dreaming, um, you know, that I can fly, that's a very different experience from the one I'm having now. And so the content can actually change pretty dramatically, even mm -hmm. in a normal, healthy brain. Um, and I think it's similar to what would happen. I mean, even just being asleep and awake, right? We go through these very different states. And so I think... There is no who would you be talking to because there's mm. no who to begin with. Mm. Right? Yeah. There's brain processing and there's experience and there's consciousness and there are whatever contents come into consciousness in that area of space time and that collection of matter. And so. I'm trying to wrap my head around this, yeah. though, because, you know, I have and, and I <laughs> I'm sure that this is this is kind of, you know, the same as realizing that there is no up, but yeah. then forgetting a second later. Yes. I think that's perpetually happening to me when I yes. think about split brain, split, split brain patients. Yeah. So my, my, my mind is telling me once the corpus callosum gets cut, yeah. it's almost as if you were watching one movie and now there are two movies that the screen has split well, my, in half. My guess is that at the experiential level, there's an experience of, a, a seamless experience in the same way that your experience is seamless when a new sound comes in the room or uh -huh. when you go to sleep and wake up, right? Uh -huh. That's just, your experience is kind of the, just the stream of experience. Um, but there's no, there's no you to it, right? Mm. <laughs> there's, there's literally just a stream of experience. So there'd be an experience associated with the right hemisphere and there'd be an experience associated with the left hemisphere. And mm. there, it's not like there's w one person who has to go one place or the other, mm. that that's, that's the illusion. Right. And so experience, there could be this continuous experience in, in branching in both directions. So um, if you were to take a split, split brain patient 
and you ask them to do two things. One is you ask them to tell you what it was like before and after mm. the experiment, mm. uh, sorry, or before and after the surgery. You ask them to tell you verbally. So mm-hmm. there you're talking to the left hemisphere. The left hemisphere. Mm-hmm. And then you ask them to also write with their left hand a narrative. What, how, how did, you know, what was it like to go from before the surgery to after the surgery? What do you think would happen? Yeah, I Would they think, be the same? I mean, I, I could be wrong, but I actually think this is not a possible experiment because I think communication through language, even written language, I don't think that can be done by the hemisphere that is, that is not mm. controlling. Um, and I know you can give options to choose from. Yeah. I'm not sure that the right hemisphere alone could write a narrative mm. in that way. And it's, I mean, I've thought about this. It's possible. And actually I, I should find out for sure whether someone has done something like that. I, yeah. I'm pretty sure there that's not, that wasn't part of the, any experiment that was done. Mm. Um, but I've thought about whether, the right hemisphere actually has an experience of self associated with it. I think mm. it's possible that that it does that illusion of self kind of resides in the left hemisphere and, because of language. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, not necessarily because of language. I mean, I think they're mm. they're related, but not necessarily. Mm. Um, I, I think you can absolutely have an experience of self without without language. Mm. But yeah. So I so also when you spoke about the right hemisphere having an experience of wanting to give the answer, but, you know, not being able to communicate with the left hemisphere. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's a good representation of what the experience is. Mm -hmm. I I don't know. I mean, this is not something we know, but I think we can't assume that, that that's the experience. It could be, um, it could even be a more accurate representation of the processing that's going on. So it's simply just an experience of, coming up with the answer, Mm. you know, key and not having further contemplations about, you know, being able to control or communicate with, Mm. but I don't, I don't know. Yeah. So we all sometimes have the experience of conflicting feelings. Mm. On the one hand, I feel X. On the other hand, Mm. I feel Y. Mm -hmm. Even to the point where I might feel one way for 10 seconds and then I feel the other way. Yeah. <laughs> like just sure. So, uh, in the context of a split brain patient, this becomes stark because one feeling is originating in a, in a part of the brain that can't talk to the other part. So there's mm-hmm. no even attempt at integrating really. You get the buttoning up and buttoning yeah. down at the yeah. same time. Yeah. But when we can communicate with each other, in some sense, it's it might still be valid to picture us as picture it as really two different desires, Mm -hmm. like almost two different, not two different people, but kind of two different people. Almost two different wills. Two different wills. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's the best way to say it. Uh Two different wills that are both operating at the same time. And the reason you feel conflicted, Mm. it's not because your one will is deciding. It's because there are two completely confident wills that know what they want that are battling. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Although I, I think you're you're still imagining the wills as selves. Yeah, I am. <laughs> I, I think, am. I can't. I can't. I think shake those it. impulses and desire to go one direction over another um, don't necessarily feel like a self in the way that you feel mm. like a self. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. So, <laughs> and it's all very hard. It's all very hard to think about. And um, we can do split brain. Yes. And we have. We can't do merged brain. No. But we can think about merged brain in light of what we know about split brain. Right. What do you think it would be like to merge brains with someone? Mm. Yeah. So I I give an example of this in my book, and I I think this is kind of endlessly interesting to contemplate. Um, I think it's similar to uh, the the examples that I've given so far in that I think there would be be a seamless I, I think the I, the illusion we have of being separate selves um, gets in the way of our being able to contemplate questions like this mm. and I think if we to the best of our ability 
drop that illusion, again, it's, it's consciousness and content. So it truly is an experience of more information coming into this island or sphere of consciousness, right? So um, if you just brought a new sound into the room, that would be the same as being connected to someone else's brain Mm. who, you know, with headphones on where a sound was delivered to that person's ear Mm. and that information could be shared with my brain, Mm -hmm. right? So it's just suddenly that there's new content that is in this experience of consciousness that is coming from the other person's brain. And so I think there'd kind of be this seamless on, on both sides Mm. experience of more and more content. Mm. And do they become the same stream or is that the wrong question? Am I still, am I still smuggling in the assumption of, I mean, I think there, no, there we just get to the limit of, of knowing how that would function as a system. So I mean, I think that there are all the answers are are possible. So mm. it could, depending on how truly integrated the systems were. I mean, I think if there were a way to integrate them as well as our two hemispheres are integrated, I think there likely would be an exper- a new experience of self. Mm. Um, but it could be more like a split split brain, yeah, experience where the the inf- there's information shared but there's still separate experiences of selves um yeah i think i think there's kind of a wide range of possibilities i also think it's possible that there are many other conscious experiences happening already Mm. in my brain Mm. that are separate from this experience Mm -hmm. that that i'm having i think in the book Um, you talk about the cerebellum i think at one point which is not the locus of consciousness as we normally conceive of it. Right. But kind of, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so so, um, I I think part of this, I was actually just going to mention him, um, Ian McGilchrist, Mm. um, he wrote a book called The Master and His Emissary, which Mm. is a fantastic book. And he talks about the possibility that, yeah, he actually, I think, feels strongly that the two hemispheres of the brain are are have very different personalities mm. and that there's some sense in which the phenomenon the phenomena we see in split brain patients is actually present mm. um to some degree in in healthy brains yeah and i'm forgetting your last question but it was related well, to that okay the right so yeah, yeah so there are Parts of the brain. So there's there's a lot of subconscious processing that happens in the brain. Um, most of it is is subconscious, and mm. then some of it rises to the level of consciousness. Which which right away is very perplexing. Yes. Why? <laughs> Why is some of it conscious but not all? It, yeah. Um, and so I I I obviously don't know the answer, but yeah. I I tend more to now think that these processes are not non-conscious. Mm. Um, they're not integrated into the system that I'm experiencing right now. The, the part of me that's communicating with you, this is, this is a very specific system in the brain that has this experience, but that there, it's possible there are like overlapping experiences even mm. within a single um, brain. And so the systems that we assume are non-conscious because um, they don't rise to the level of this experience um, could could have consciousness associated with mm. it. Yeah, you, I think you say in the book something like, if it's possible to imagine a worm that, mm. let's posit, is mm. conscious yes. inside of you, right? It, in principle, it, it's no harder to imagine that your body parts right. could be conscious. I mean, even other body, body parts in principle, but it's easier sure. to imagine brain uh, parts of your brain yes. working synergistically. Mm-hmm. There's there's It's just that... But even without an experience of self or will, just, right. um, you know, very, very uh, much more basic level experience, just there's something it's like to be mm. that processing. There's some experience associated with it. It's not that it's completely lights out on the inside, that there's, it's a totally dead, you know, process in terms of 
of consciousness. Um, mm-hmm. So not that it's like there's all these different people, you know, in yeah. me. Yeah. Um, but that there's, yeah. This connects, and we'll, we'll end on this note, but mm-hmm. this connects to panpsychism. Yeah. Because if it is true that consciousness goes all the way down to atoms or below, mm-hmm. it, to say, which is to say that it's an intrinsic property of matter. Yes. Which the more and more you think about it, the more and more it, it would make, frankly, more sense than the alternatives. Which is so strange. But which yes, is that's where we I have arrive. to admit that we're choosing among only strange alternatives. Right. That's all that's on the menu. <laughs> yeah. And the question is to choose the 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 one that's most plausible. Logical. Yeah. 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 And it it could turn out that panpsychism is that, but then that would imply that. Every atom in your brain, in your body, could itself have a very rudimentary form of consciousness. Yes. Yet what, quote-unquote, you feel like is something like the whole system. You might be unaware of the other points of view, so to speak, Mm -hmm. in your own body, Mm -hmm. just like you're unaware of my point of view. Sure. As distant. Right. Which is a very, I don't know if that's alienating. It's, there's something alienating about, about that mean, prospect. Even, even simple facts that we know, like I, for, I always forget the, the ratio, but, you know, whatever human cells to, yeah. um, you know, other. That's true. <laughs> other there already are other organisms. Yeah, I mean, that idea, every yeah. time I think of it, is yeah. creepy, but yeah. it, it, is, it is a fact. And if you're not thinking about it, it doesn't really, it's not relevant. Right. Um, but yeah, no, it's similar to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Monica Harris, <laughs> on that note, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was just fun. All right. <laughs>